0: Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Show, your source for insightful analysis and enlightening discussions. Hello, I'm Michael Bull. Thanks for being with us today. Today, we're going to talk about legal matters prevalent in the commercial real estate industry. You know, as technology, business, and commercial real estate industry has evolved, it's important to stay on top of prevalent legal issues. Well, today, we'll share some of the latest legal issues to consider related to commercial real estate, leases, contracts, zoning, and technology. Please welcome my guest. We have Sonny Morris here. Sonny's a partner with Morris, Manning, and Martin. Sonny, thanks for joining us again on the show. Glad to be here. Well, we appreciate it. Also, please welcome Daryl Moss. He's a partner with Weissman, Nowak, Curry, and Wilco. Daryl, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. We appreciate it, guys, and uh, being here in Studio One. and. Before we get into some of the real uh, meat of of prevalent legal matters, first of all, I'd like to ask you a little bit just about the about the industry and what's going on, Sonny. You know what's changed in a in a real estate practice law practice today? That with all these changes have gone on in the economy and real estate.
1: Well, surprisingly, in addition to continuing acquisitions and development work, uh, because of the amount of capital available in the market, we've really growing a real estate capital markets presence with uh, both real estate investment funds and real estate investment trusts.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of activity out there right now, a lot of acquisitions, a lot of dispositions. It seems like some of these markets are even hotter than they were pre-recession, aren't they?
1: That's true, and we're grateful.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, Daryl, tell us about some changes in, in your environment there at uh, at Wiseman Nowak. Uh, have, how have you guys had to uh, adjust your practice for, say, the new real estate economy?
2: Yeah, well, looking back like seven or eight years ago, you know, we were working with a lot of developers of condominium and mixed use projects and some executives that, you know, developers seven years ago in 2007, they were executives at developers. By 2009, they were working in REO, develop, REO departments and banks. Um, and luckily, we were able to preserve those relationships and kind of expand our practice. We went from working with a lot of developers to, you know, doing different types of work, working with banks, working with dispositions and REOs, we went from developers who were doing condominiums who are now doing multi-family apartments. Um, so we've been able to sort of retain flexibility and kind of adjust to our clients' needs. As the market changed, we've adjusted with our clients. And you know I think the real estate firms that have been successful through the downturn were those that were able to make those adjustments.
0: Right. Yeah. And, and had to make them quickly, it seems. I mean, you know, we did a lot of uh, bank work and, and workout work in our, our commercial real estate brokerage practice and selling REO. And, but uh, now that's really dwindled. I mean, we have some sites, land sites, and things we're doing around the southeast for banks. But, uh, but it's been a robust uh, investment sales market. So, And another thing I've noticed about some of, some of our clients are a little more cost conscious than they were pre-recession. Sonny, you do you see some of that in the, in the legal world as well?
1: Well, I think it's important because legal fees generally do tend to be costly, mm-hmm. uh, that the firm be mindful of adding value and uh, really selling the clients on the fact that you're adding value and you're making introductions for them to help their business in any way you can. You really have to partner with your client.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. And we've seen that too. You know, we've, you want to put them with good folks, uh, maybe uh, even present them some opportunities, right? From some of the connections that you have with, with, brokers and other clients and things, right?
1: Yes, that's exactly right. And that's what they appreciate. And that's what yeah. we try to cultivate that we're not a broker but we'll do everything we can to make their business successful.
0: Right, right. Well, talk to us about career advice before we get into some of the legal matters of commercial real estate today. If you were, uh, Sonny, uh, you've you've been in the law practice a long time. You've got a big practice uh, with a lot of offices and a lot of attorneys. What advice would you give to young attorneys that are maybe in real estate law or maybe they're considering uh, legal work or a real estate law?
1: Well, it's a, it's a profession that you really have to be dedicated to, and it's mm-hmm. very difficult to be successful in it because the overhead for law firms is so high. Mm-hmm. Um, trying, to, trying to collect the right amount of fee is challenging, and um, I've probably persuaded more people not to go into the practice <laughs> of law than I
0: have to go into the practice of law. Right. Be careful what you ask for, Right. right? Daryl, you had some advice for for young lawyers getting in the business.
2: Yeah, you know, I think there's some opportunities today mm-hmm. that weren't there in the last few years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the last probably five to seven years, there haven't been a lot of young real estate attorneys who've come into the into the profession, mm-hmm. and as a result, there's somewhat of a void. There are less real estate attorneys today than there were in 2007. Um, you know, I go to the the um, real estate section of the. Georgia bar has an annual meeting and when I first started going you know 10 12 years ago I looked around the room and I was the youngest attorney there I Mm -hmm. went last year and I'm not that young anymore and I was still one of the younger attorneys in the room so there's this void of not many young real estate attorneys out there but I think there are more opportunities and more jobs today Um, and there are opportunities for young real estate attorneys today that didn't exist in the last few years
1: I agree with that we're we're it's challenging to staff as young as you need to be, um, and um, I, we make a regular practice of hiring a lot of laterals from bigger law firms, and because we can charge them out at a much lower billable rate, and they can have an opportunity to build a practice.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Uh, it works for everyone, and and I think it's also a good uh, legal practice. I mean, real estate's kind of fun, if you ask me, uh, especially as compared to some some law right uh it could be fun to put deals together and help clients right let's talk about what some of your maybe lender clients have learned from this past uh recession daryl and and what's important to them maybe in their in their documents and in their processes today
2: You know, I think one painful lesson a lot of lenders learned, particularly in sort of residential development area, subdivisions, condominiums, a lot of them provided loans, particularly on larger projects where there were many phases and they didn't properly secure their rights in the project. And what I mean by that, you would have, for example, a large real estate um, residential subdivision, and they may provide loans on a certain phase, but not the entire project. So you had a situation where you may have multiple lenders within the same subdivision, And we landed up with these situations where the lenders would land up foreclosing but not have secured proper rights of the developer and as a result that compromised their security in the project. And to give you sort of a more, you know, concrete example of that, you know, in a subdivision there would be a set of covenants and the developer would retain the rights to approve plans for development, to control the HOA. And you had these situations where you had multiple lenders that had foreclosed within these projects, and they wanted to build on their lots, and they were having to go back to their foreclosed borrower and get approval. And those foreclosed borrowers were able to use that as leverage if there was a deficiency judgment. (laughs) Exactly. Um, You know, you're looking at a big deficiency judgment. um, You're the developer, and you're saying to the lender, you want to build on those lots? You want to be able to sell them? maybe let's waive that deficiency and work something out here. Um, So I think a lot of lenders kind of learned a painful lesson. And, you know, when they're going into these projects now up front, they're, you know, carefully looking at those issues and making sure that they're securing themselves and putting them in a position where they're not, um, you know, kind of subordinated to their own borrower.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. And it's, you know, lenders aren't in the commercial real estate business they're not in the development business but they certainly learned a lot about real estate in this downturn so i guess they're they're realizing now they've got to look at even though as great as that loan looks and that borrower looks today to, to make sure they have everything intact and a lot of the times that we were handling reo and you know, we'd ask lenders you know hey do you have this or have this and they just wouldn't have a lot of things and it's like they never thought that they'd ever get anything back mm-hmm. it's like the memories were short right sonny I mean, well you
1: know. that's absolutely true and yeah. There was a recent case, though, where lenders uh, did take over the declarance rights mm-hmm. and elected uh, their own officers and directors to control the homeowner association, and the court found that that was a, an unfair dealing and uh, deprived the lot owners of their right to govern the community. Mm. so it goes both ways
0: yeah you had to be careful what about borrowers I guess borrowers have really learned a lot in the downturn what are some things that borrowers are more concerned with in their documents today uh,
2: Um, you know I think particularly a lot of boulders and developers they're closely looking at things like personal guarantees mm-hmm. um, you know seven ten years ago they would sign a loan couldn't imagine that they wouldn't pay off the loan And I think a lot of them learn some painful lessons. And, you know, when they're signing loan documents, reviewing loan documents, they want to have a better understanding of, you know, what flexibility do they have if there's a default, if they're providing a personal guarantee, um, you know, what events will trigger that personal guarantee. They're looking to, you know, bold out limitations to the extent that banks will give them on those personal guarantees. So just a lot more cognizant of what their downside is if things, you know, don't, turn out like so i guess
0: there's a lot more wrangling these days on these loan documents than there were back in the heyday right everybody's more concerned
1: that that's absolutely true Mm -hmm. and even so-called recourse loans Mm -hmm. have exceptions for non-recourse carve-outs which are hotly contested and negotiated because the way they're drafted by lenders lawyers they actually turn non-recourse into recourse pretty quickly
0: yeah yeah you got to watch it and uh yeah, we've learned a lot, and we're going to learn some more in this show. We're going to have some more prevalent legal issues and commercial real estate, including contracts, leases, and other documents. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you in part by your friends at Bull Realty. When your business requires proven performance, visit bullrealty.com or call 800 408 bull welcome back to the commercial real estate show i'm michael bull today we're talking about prevalent legal issues in the commercial real estate industry my guests are sunny morris with morris manning and martin and daryl moss a partner with weisman nowak Curry, and Wilco. And guys, before the break, we were talking about some of the issues that borrowers, investors, developers have learned uh, about uh, loan documents. And one that, that we've seen uh, kind of come up with borrowers that sometimes surprised them that they, they could have one project that was uh, doing great, they have another project that maybe has some sort of a default issue, but because the loans were with the same lender, the lender was able to cause problems and maybe foreclose on several properties. Even though these, the, there wasn't a default on the first property, is that is that a form of kind of cross default, Daryl?
2: Yeah, I mean, you often see that. Sometimes it would be a cross-default provision in the loan agreement, mm-hmm. but more typically as part of a personal guarantee. Mm-hmm. That that would be, you know, kind of a, one of the bad boy carve-outs that would trigger the personal guarantee. Um, but you know, particularly as the lending environment has improved and borrowers have more leverage today with lenders, you know, when we see those types of provisions come out in a personal guarantee, and I'm representing a borrower, that's usually one of the first things I'll mark out. And had a fairly high success. Rate recently, you know, when marking that out, and you know, lenders kind of backing off on that. Yeah. But those personal guarantees and the bad boy carve-outs to the personal guarantees that trigger the personal guarantees are very much a hot topic. Yeah, well,
0: I'm uh, glad that someone would back off on, on that. I guess from a from a real estate broker's uh, viewpoint, because you know, maybe you're an investor in a deal and you invest in a great deal, you might not have checked out the the. the other deals that invest that general partner's involved in, and if he has a problem with that one, you, you figure you have a single-asset entity that you're not going to have a problem with this one, but then you could. So I think that's something that, that that lenders should back off on if they will. But, Sonny, what else are you seeing out there with well, borrowers? Well,
1: one more comment on that mm-hmm. topic. The, the way that often sneaks into the loan documents mm-hmm. is the language says that this property is pledged to secure this loan and any other indebtedness. And that then brings in all the debt that the borrower has with a lender.
0: Wow. So Those few words do it.
1: Very few words, in it. but it, it. it's common to start out with a draft like that.
0: Wow. Right. Well, Sonny, what else are you seeing with uh, documents and, and lenders today, and what uh, borrowers are uh, maybe contesting?
1: Well, they're contesting, as we've said, the non-recourse carve-outs to make mm-hmm. sure that they don't turn recourse, non-recourse into recourse. Mm-hmm. Secondly, the both the lenders and the equity investors in projects are requiring the general partners to invest a substantial portion of the equity. And the general partners generally don't have enough working capital to support all their development. So they, they want to be able to bring in other people to participate with them on the GP side of the investment. And that's very highly negotiated as to what will be permitted and what won't be. And generally, you can uh, negotiate a provision that allow you to bring in 49 percent of the equity, so if the GP had to put up a million dollars, they can find somebody else to come up with 490,000 of it.
0: Right, because the lender's concerned that, wants to make sure the GP who's controlling that project has the skin in the game, right? That is correct. All right, interesting. Well, anything else in the kind of the loan document situation, it seems like everyone's uh, more concerned with that on the, on the borrower side and the, then the lender side. Anything else kind of coming up as a contested issue in these documents?
1: Well, uh, the, the equity investors are taking a very hard line um, and often um, secure the position as the manager of the LLC, that is the investment entity, and then appoint the developer as the administrative agent to run it on a day-to-day basis. But during the downturn, they found that uh, because they weren't the manager, they didn't really have adequate control over the borrower entity. So the equity investors are driving as a harder bargain, if not harder, than the um, lenders are.
0: That's interesting. And in some ways, that can really help the, the lender, right?
1: Yes, yeah. it does. It yeah. C- creates an alliance between the equity investor and the lender.
0: And the developer's concern may be that he's getting squeezed in the process, right?
1: <laughs> he's concerned that his, his ability to be entrepreneurial and manage uh, the project, which will have changes, is uh, severely restricted. or or it can be. It just depends on how vigorously an equity investor exercises its rights to management.
0: Okay. And what about sales contracts? I know the investment sales market is is really heated up. Uh, We're seeing it more robust than we did even pre-recession. What are some things that you guys are seeing in sales contracts, Sonny, that are um, hotly negotiated these days?
1: Well, it, we've turned 100% around, and mm-hmm. we now have a seller's market. Mm-hmm. As a result, they're competing for the same assets buyers are. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's more all cash, quick close, and as-is, where-is provisions in, in sales contracts. Mm-hmm. So the, the burden is on the buyer to do really superb due diligence. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and we're even seeing that, you know, in the consumer context where you have developers, you know, selling finished residential homes to buyers. know, mm-hmm. um, lo- If you look at the disclosures that are on your typical purchase agreement, you maybe had a list of, you know, five or ten disclosures ten years ago. I mean, our standard purchase agreement that we use for developers selling, you know, residential units. We've got 60 plus disclosures and we're disclosing, you know, all sorts of things that you would think you, you read them and you say this is kind of ridiculous, but they're all the basis of a complaint. Um, And having those disclosures in those contracts, you know, particularly in the consumer context, when you get a complaint for the consumer, you can say, look at disclosure 59. We told you about this. Don't complain about this. There's a restaurant located next to the building. Yes, there will be smells. You know, there's an empty lot next to the building. It may be bulk. Your view may be blocked if you're up in a high rise. You know, disclosing those items up front, um, you know. The list of disclosures are just just tremendously expanded. What might
0: surprise people that they might see in those uh, disclosures? What else might surprise them?
2: Um, You know, all sorts of things. The school that serves your home may change. I mean, we've had complaints. You know, I bought this home because I wanted to send my child to, you know, Elm Street Elementary School. They move into the home, changes, and they're now going to a different school. I went out of my contract, Mm -hmm. Um, that type of thing.
1: The the result of the downturn was an avalanche of litigation against developers from very imaginative plaintiff's lawyers, and they fashioned complaints over every conceivable thing you could think of. And they have a perfect right to do so and to file the lawsuit, and all you can do is defend it. So I think what Dwight's talking about is developers having to defend off the plaintiff's bar that um, really made a mockery of the judicial system— after the downturn,
0: yeah. Tell us about this uh, case that you guys were talking about, where uh, the personal guarantees uh, issues are coming up. Yeah, I mean, there was a
2: case in Michigan I mm-hmm. actually just read about uh, yesterday that was recently decided, um, where the legislature there had actually passed a law that said if there's a provision in a personal guarantee, and this is on a commercial loan, um, that if the borrower becomes insolvent, that, that would trigger the personal guarantee would be a bad boy car, an enforceable bad boy um, provision and a personal guarantee. The legislature passed a law saying that's against public policy. That's not an enforceable provision. Went up to the appellate courts in Michigan and the uh, Michigan appellate court upheld the provision. um, That that was not an enforceable provision.
0: What's the significance of that?
1: Well, the significance is that you've bargained for a non-recourse loan and that meant that maybe you had to put in 20% 20% more equity than you would have had it been an equity, uh, a recourse loan. Mm-hmm. So it's the borrower has bar has bargained for a non-recourse loan. So for the lender then to be able to backdoor their way into a recourse loan changes the benefit of the bargain.
0: Right, and it could have been a proxy that was doing fine, just the borrower became insolvent, right? Right, all yeah. kinds of things. Oh, that's crazy. Well, stay tuned. We'll have more prevalent legal issues. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you in part by Florida International University. With FIU's Fast Track system, you can earn your master's in real estate in just 10 months without interrupting your career. Visit FIUonline.com to learn more. That's FIUonline.com. Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Ball. Today we're discussing legal issues prevalent in the commercial real estate industry. We have Daryl Moss with us and Sonny Morris. And Sonny, before the break, we were talking about uh, sales contracts and some of the issues coming up. Um, sometimes, at least in the past years and still today, some, we see seller reps and warranties as a negotiated item. Uh, where the purchaser wants the seller to reps and warranties about the property the the leases and that sort of thing to survive maybe for a long time or some period of time sellers want them to end uh, at closing a hey, look at it and buy it or not right uh, what are you seeing out there in reps and warranties in your practice and sales contracts
1: well reps and warranties from a seller's point of view they want them to be very limited mm-hmm. from the buyer's point of view the things you can do due diligence on, you basically have to take the risk on, like the physical condition of the building and the mechanics of the building. Mm-hmm. But uh, you do want to get reps and warranties as to the fact that the leases that the seller is showing you, that those are in fact valid leases that have been executed properly, and there are no amendments other than those that have been disclosed. So those types of reps and warranties, you have to depend upon an honest seller uh, and, if, and if they've defrauded you, you do need some recourse, but it is hotly contested and it's limited. And generally, if you can get estoppel certificates from the tenants, that puts an end to that rep and warranty.
0: Right. That's a good point. And if you do get reps and warranties on those leases and it's a single asset uh, entity that the seller has, and now the, that entity has nothing left, of, you know, how does the bar, buyer protect himself there?
1: By aggressively performing all the due diligence and getting tenant estoppel certificates.
0: Okay. And, and not really relying as much on that survival of the reps and warranties. Well, uh, a
1: contract and reps and warranties are just a, a lawsuit. It's not a very good remedy for just good business practices. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and I think a lot of buyers, you know, coming out of an REO environment became a lot savvier at doing due diligence. I mean, you had banks selling properties and, you know, it was as is, whereas we'll tell you the price and the closing date and pretty yeah. much nothing else about it. Um, so they became savvy at doing their due diligence. And as we're going into a, you know, more of a seller's market now and you're getting less reps and warranties, um, I think buyers are sort of more experienced at doing, due diligence and kind of in a better position to evaluate the properties before they go forward.
0: Yeah, that's a good point point. and I, as brokers, you know, we we advise our sellers that, and our brokers, look, let's get all the hair out. Let's get all the good, bad and different things out and uh, let's get that disclosed to the purchaser, even sign off on it, even before he goes under contract. You know, there's enough buyers in the marketplace. There's not a bad property. I say there's a bad owner, right? <laughs> you, know, you know, yeah, every property may have some hair on it, but let's get it out there and make sure everybody's comfortable with it before we start moving down the, the contract road well let's talk about leases for a moment because so certainly you know tenants have, have learned a lot through the downturn and and uh, so what are some of the concerns Daryl, that you're seeing uh, that tenants are having with their uh, leases today that may be a little different than years past well we're certainly
2: going into more of a landlord market at the moment um, so tenants you know things that they were able to extract out of landlords you know during the downturn they're not able to get today you know mm-hmm. flexibility when it comes to termination flexibility when it comes to assignment flexibility when it comes to change of use all those types of flexibility that you know I think buyers were able to extract from landlords when they were more desperate to lease their space a few years ago you know landlords are now able to push back and they're in a much stronger negotiating position today than they have have been in the past few years
0: yeah yeah well let's talk about some of the terms that um, landlords and their lenders have been concerned with sunny and related to lease documents today I guess landlord uh, or lenders especially learned a lot about taking back properties and and now they've got to deal with these leases right
1: yes they do and so the lender has to do their due diligence mm-hmm. on the income of the of the property mm-hmm. uh, because they may become the owner and they'll be relying on that income <coughs> um, and they they obviously want a fair mix of credit in whatever portfolio they're buying because they, they that justifies a lower cap rate but you've got to you got to have credit tenants and a lot of a lot of buyers insist on that
0: mm-hmm. and daryl what do you see in lease documents that uh landlords maybe are more concerned with today you know, or or their uh, lenders
2: Um, You know, just kind of following up Mm -hmm. with what Sonny was saying, you know, Mm -hmm. when they're getting personal guarantees or corporate guarantees, really sort of doing a thorough evaluation of the credit worthiness of either the individual Mm -hmm. or the entity that's providing that guarantee. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's very much a hot button issue and something, you know, landlords have become savvier about because it's, you know, the expectation for lenders or, you know, potential future buyers as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, we've seen in, in our transactions that uh, the lender's a little more concerned uh, about the stop letters and, and getting confirmation from these tenants and, and having a lot more details in there, so so they feel more comfortable. Well, Sonny, let's talk about zoning and entitlement issues. I mean, the development is is really strong in the, in the big markets. Uh, we're starting to see a lot of development in, in secondary markets uh, uh, around, and uh, so. But looks like we're on the break, so. <laughs> we know what's coming up. We're going to talk about some development entitlement issues and prevalent legal issues related to development. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you in part by RealNex, providing a comprehensive suite of powerful commercial real estate tools at an incredibly low cost. Visit realnex.com. That's R E A L N E X welcome back to the commercial real estate show i'm michael bull thanks for being with us on one of the 40 radio stations itunes or youtube or the commercial real estate show website thanks for being with us today we're talking about prevalent legal issues in commercial real estate we have daryl moss with us and sunny Morrison. and uh, sunny we want to talk about um issues involving zoning and entitlement. Seems like that, that business is really ramped up with folks trying to redevelop properties and develop new properties to get in on what looks like a very robust commercial real estate market ahead of us. What are some of the legal issues you see uh, more prevalent today in zoning?
1: Well, one of those that's most prevalent is a result of the, of the recovery. Mm-hmm. And uh, during the early stages of the recovery, there was plenty of property that was zoned for apartments but that property has more or less rebounded and has been purchased and is under development. So there's been a big rush to rezone additional properties for multifamily, but it's running into a backlash from a lot of suburban communities that don't want rentals in their market or in their city or within their jurisdiction. So there's a huge fight between the residents and the developers where apartments are actually needed, but the residents don't want people renting in their community
0: right even though these are going to be class a very nice apartments i guess they realize well at some point they will be old apartments right
1: <laughs> i think that, that that if they if they can just keep them out they feel like
0: they've enriched their neighborhood right and what about on the commercial developments today? It seemed like there was a window that municipalities were wanting the development. They're wanting the, the tax money in there, and they wanted to, to redevelop. But it seems like some of the municipalities are kind of uh, pushing back now and, and aren't as easy to, to get fin- get uh, zoning as, uh, as we might think, right?
1: Well, people are concerned about the additional traffic because hmm. most cities – don't have adequate transportation Mm -hmm. and the more commercial development you have the more traffic you have which overloads an existing system so there are a lot of residents who object to more commercial development particularly where they see single-family housing being demolished to make way for a commercial project
0: yeah not in my backyard, right? Nimbies. <laughs> well, let's talk about mixed-use development. I think mixed-use development is really the wave of, of the future. I mean, you know, you look at millennials or you look at folks my age. You know, if I was going to live in a multi-family kind of environment, I want to be in a mixed-use where I can walk – out of my building and, and get a, a nice steak or or maybe do some shopping. So, Darrell, what are some prevalent legal issues in these mixed-use developments? They're a lot more complex, aren't they? Yeah,
2: they certainly are, especially mm-hmm. when you get into situations where you have, you know, different ownership within the mixed-use development. You may have, the you know, the residential owned by one owner, the retail owned by one owner, the office owned by a different owner, you know, coming up with a governing structure that works for that development. And I think there were some important lessons learned, you know, from the last wave of development where, you know, mixed use developments first became prevalent. Mm-hmm. And one of them is simplicity. Um, there are some mixed use projects out there where you have multiple layers of associations, for example. You know, you may own a residential condo unit within a high rise building that's, you know, maybe got some a hotel or some retail on the ground floor. So you have one association for that building. It's located within one portion of the mixed use development. So that building's part of another association. That association, Associations, then a member of the master association for the whole community. So you've got this situation where you're a member of your residential condo association, that's one association, you're a member of the association for the building that's a second association you're a member of the association for the (coughs) district of the master of the mixed-use project and then you're a member of the master association for the entire project so you have four levels of associations within this mixed-use development that's four levels of boards of directors four levels of management and cost yeah four levels of assessment (laughs) and trying to keep track of the accounting of all of that and understanding what you can and can't do with your unit you know, creates a situation where, you know, you have a full stack of documents and anytime the manager needs to do something, I mean, it's good for people in our business, they're calling the attorneys and we're having to look through these multiple layers of documents to figure out what you can and can't do or who's responsible for maintaining something or who's responsible um, for paying for something. So, you know, an important lesson that I think lawyers learned, that developers learned, is to try to simplify the documents as much as possible. And sometimes kind of utilize some what I call kind of rough justice instead of trying to sort of split the baby for every cost, you know, you may have a hallway or some common facility and dividing it up among four different owners and sharing the costs and having a third party be responsible for that. You maybe just say, hey, you're going to be responsible for this. You'll pay for it. We'll all share in it. And as a result, you know, one of the other parties will take up another portion of the project and you'll just grant a simple easement of use, Mm -hmm. but you don't get into the situation where you're trying to kind of split the baby on maintenance costs on every single portion of the building. And developers have also gotten more savvy in sort of bifurcating, even, you know, within like a a high-rise building where you have multiple uses, you know, making sure that they're more kind of exclusive areas, particularly kind of -of back-of-house facilities for like the retail, and they're not sharing with the residentials, less sharing and just kind of creating a simplified environment, less associations, less sharing of costs, and, you know, where each party sort of has as a result kind of more independence that within makes, the mixed use that facility. Makes and less that, result less possibility
0: right? of conflict right so you have everything there but they're not sharing as much so you would have a lot less complications and but also i guess you have you know, less controls and i guess that's one of the things to think about that these documents that if you're a, you're a tenant a uh, commercial tenant in one of these uh, spaces or you're mm-hmm. one of the developers that they're in there you know you your these agreements could control these assets for 50 years 100 years right Perpetuity. I
1: mean, yeah they're perpetual agreements
0: <laughs> i mean that's some. That, that's not your normal uh, contractor lease that lasts a short amount of time.
1: Well, that's what's happened from the early stages of mixed-use. People jumped into mixed-use, developers did, without thoroughly understanding the allocation of cost mm-hmm. among the competing uses. Mm-hmm. So you really need to do a lot of diligence in the planning of the development and the programming of what the costs are going to be and so that each of your users has an idea what's going on with the property.
0: Good point. We'll be right back. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. Excelligen, the resource professionals like CCIMs, CBRE, JLL, Colliers, and Bull Realty use for market intelligence. Commercial Search is the site to market and find available properties to buy, sell, or lease all over the country. Visit CommercialSearch.com. Welcome back to the commercial real estate show. I'm Michael Ball. Today we're talking about prevalent legal issues in the commercial real estate industry with Daryl Moss and Sonny Morrison. And Sonny, um, underground Atlanta I understand is is being redeveloped and you guys are working on that project and that has multi layers of multi uses. So that's an interesting one to talk about to, to give our listeners an idea of some of the complexities and issues to these mixed use developments, isn't it?
1: Well it's it's a challenge. It's eleven and a half acres. Mm-hmm located in downtown Atlanta. Um, many of the buildings have been there since the turn of the century. Um, but the area has changed, so you've got to come up with a redevelopment plan consistent with what the city of Atlanta wants in the redevelopment and consistent with what the neighborhoods are. But it is a multidimensional uh, mixed-use development which takes place on different layers. Because uh, the, the old underground Atlanta will be preserved and will be put to appropriate entertainment uses but it'll be a a community more geared to service the local students of georgia state the fulton county government city of atlanta government and the state government
0: and for the listeners that might not be familiar with underground atlanta back in its heyday it was like a city under the city right
1: well downtown atlanta was crisscrossed with railroad tracks and there there were like 150 trains running through downtown atlanta a day so the idea was to build bridges over the uh, railroad tracks and then the, the steel bridges were there originally, and then they were encased in concrete and made permanent, which then all the businesses moved up one or two stories in a five-block area. Uh, and, the, and just the, 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 the stores that were left below were just forgotten. They were rediscovered back in the 80s and reopened uh, as a really pretty interesting, cool uh, entertainment area
0: yeah it was pretty popular back in its day, right? Yeah. It was indeed. So how many uses do you have involved in this project? What kind of uses you have? Well,
1: there will be student housing, uh, apartments, condominiums, retail, uh, entertainment, restaurants. It, it'll be a, a city within a city.
0: and all those have to interact.
1: They all have to interact, and they all have to be thought out before you get started. (laughs)
0: Right, and thought out for uh, eternity, how they're gonna work together.
1: Well, you do, because you're building over uh, CSX railroad tracks, you're building over MARTA tracks. Um, So there's just a lot of interesting development challenges, and then you got a lot of air rights issues.
0: Mm -hmm. Darrell, what else do you see with these mixed-use developments that uh, people want to think about?
1: You have to think about
2: them from the long term. You know, when we're putting covenants on Those are perpetual documents. Mm -hmm. And what may work today as an apartment Mm -hmm. may need to become an office or a hotel or retail down the road. And, you know, putting in enough flexibility in those documents as well as, you know, sort of counteracting that with restrictions that you sometimes need as well to make everything work. Mm -hmm. Um, So you don't land up with a project that in 15, 20, 30, you know, whatever it is, 30 years down the road doesn't work because you don't have flexibility to sort of reinvigorate that project um you know and i think developers have become a lot more cognizant of that attorneys are a lot more cognizant of that to try to build in flexibility so the project can work you know not just for five or ten years but for 50 or more years
0: right and one of those examples we're sh- uh, in the end of the show here is that you know if a, if it's a condominium and now it needs to be some other use uh, some flexibility, right? So someone can come in and buy, uh, buy all those condominiums or a lot of them and convert it back to, to maybe a rental or some other use, right?
2: yeah and some states have done a better job of that with their statutes than mm-hmm. others i mean here in georgia effectively if you're going to terminate a condominium and you know resell it to a developer who's going to come in and purchase all the units you need a hundred percent consent not only of the owners but of their lenders as well yeah. um, some states like florida have a little bit more flexibility which allow for termination with a lower threshold of approval. So you're not stuck with a situation where you may just have a couple of holdouts that hold everyone hostage who's willing to sell and getting, you know, a fair price. And that's
0: amazing in Florida where there's a lot of consumer protection laws. Well, gentlemen, thanks for joining us on the show today. We appreciate you being here. Thank Thank you. Enjoyed it. Be sure to join us next week. We're going to talk about the film industry and tax credits and real estate. Until next week, be sure that you always lead, learn, and laugh and join us for the Commercial Real Estate Show. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Bull Realty Commercial Advisors, a great place to do business. Visit bullrealty.com. RealNex, a comprehensive and powerful suite of commercial real estate tools at an incredibly low price. Visit realnex.com. That's R E A L N E X. FIU, Florida International University. Earn your master's in real estate in as little as 10 months without interrupting your career. Visit FIUOnline.com. Excelligent, the resource professionals use for commercial real estate information. Visit Excelligent.com. That's X C E L I G E N T. Commercial Search, the source to market and source available properties for sale or lease. Visit CommercialSearch.com. For more information on these great companies or for additional videos, podcasts, or articles, visit CREShow.com.